Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you guys for tuning in. My guest this week is a lifelong diplomat and Asia expert named Danny Russell. Danny and I wanted to catch up and talk about a few things. The first is the trip to Asia that President Trump is on right now as we speak. We do sort of a signals check on how it's going, how a trip like this gets put together, what work goes into it, and what makes it a success or a failure. We also talk about China, what President Trump is doing there, how their government and system actually works. I actually learned a lot because I didn't know a whole bunch of the stuff Danny told me. And lastly, we talked about North Korea. It's been a huge subject of discussion in Japan, in South Korea, in China, and everywhere President Trump has been. Danny gives me his sense, having just left government, about what the threat really is and what we can and should be doing to try to stop North Korea from progressing further in its nuclear program. Danny is a rare diplomat and foreign policy expert who has a sense of humor. Uh, I think that will come through. So I think you guys will appreciate the interview. And with that, here's Danny Russell. I am thrilled and honored to have my friend Danny Russell in the studio today for Pod Save the World. He is a career diplomat who I served with when he was special assistant to the president and senior director for Asian affairs at the White House. Uh, He also served as assistant secretary of state for East Asia and Pacific Affairs at the State Department and a billion other positions throughout his time in government. He is currently the diplomat in residence at the Asia Society Policy Institute and in Los Angeles uh, to my great benefit. Danny Russell, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tommy. It's great to see you. I have fond memories of our working together on our plan for global domination. (laughs) Global domination, one pivot at a time to Asia. Your timing is perfect because Donald Trump is in the middle of a five-nation 13-day trip to Asia. It includes stops in Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, the Philippines. It is the longest trip for a U.S. president since George H.W. Bush in 1992. And look what happened then. Which concluded with him vomiting on the prime minister of Japan. You and I were on 10-day-long Asia trips with President Obama, and they are brutal. I mean, like, there's at least two days when I just wouldn't sleep at all. I'd walk down into the press file and see... You know, some dreary-eyed, you know, wire correspondent sitting there. But, yeah, I actually think you were quoted in the New York Times calling this trip the uh, Baton Death March. Something uh, like that. Something yeah. like that. So I was sort of hoping to start at the, at the beginning. Like, what goes into planning a trip like this? When you were doing these things for President Obama, what did you want to get out of them? How long did it take you to put it together and, and prep the boss before you felt comfortable that that it could be successful. (laughs) I never felt comfortable that it could be successful, although having a boss like Barack Obama made it uh, a little bit easier. (laughs) Yeah, the flight back was pretty good, except for the one I I almost died on, (laughs) where the the president's doctor came back because nobody could wake me up. (laughs) They were sure it was drugs, but it was pure exhaustion. It was 11 days of not sleeping. Exactly, exactly. So the only thing that's tougher than... Being on one of these trips is preparing for one of these Mm -hmm. trips. And, you know, there are a lot of things that go into it. I mean, in terms of what you're trying to do, 
you know, the uh, the visit by a president of the United States is an immense forcing function. So this is the world's biggest crowbar mm-hmm. for getting things done and for kind of breaking open stalemates and, and problems. Mm-hmm. But in order for it to work, you have to have really laid the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you can get out, uh, what you can harvest, so to speak, and then what sort of seeds you can plant in a visit that can be followed through right. on and collected later. Those those are sort of the two big questions uh, or objectives, in addition to, of course, the perennial objective of not letting your president barf on uh, another <laughs> fund later, if you can avoid it. I, I mean, specifically in Asia, for us, and I think it remains doubly true, uh, the, the objective is to sustain if, or replenish uh, the faith that your allies have in you and instill the appropriate amount of unease, if not fear, in adversaries right. uh, wherever they are. So in terms of Asia, the big question is whether Xi Jinping's quote-unquote new era mm-hmm. equates to the end of the American era. Right. That's the, so I think the, the mission of this trip in, in particular is to answer that question mm. And then there's always the, like, don't screw it up. Yeah, the don't screw it up. Planning. I mean, you, you sort of mentioned um, something that us press goons would call deliverables. Uh, I was in many a meeting with Robert Gibbs or Ben Rhodes where mm-hmm. we were barking at the policy team for deliverables because, like you said, these are action-forcing events, these visits. Heads of state like to announce things. They want concrete items that go in press releases. Have you seen any such items or announcements or wins so far on, on this trip that President Trump has undertaken? Well, I mean, there are two uh, sides to the coin. Uh, one is what you really get done. Mm-hmm. And the other is what I'd call opportunity costs. Mm-hmm. You know, did you actually utilize the the trip and the visit of the president? Right. Uh, to its fullest extent, because right. it's not just about deliverables and tangible, immediate results. Um, it's also about you know bending the curve, shaping the behavior and the trajectory of of other countries. And if you haven't laid the groundwork and you haven't really prepared for it, then it just becomes a sort of flashbang stun grenade, mm-hmm. and it's over. Mm-hmm. So. You know, in terms of deliverables, I'm pretty scarred. If you did a CAT scan on my brain, you'd find all these uh, dark patches from all of my trips. And deliverables is still uh, makes me quiver. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's definitely a trigger word. Yes. Um, Because not everything is going to be instantly visible. Yeah. Um, But what's critically important is to have a story to tell. And that's where Ben Rhodes' magic came in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So being able to tell the story, the strategic messaging, uh, and it's not just a story. It's got to be populated with credible uh, events, actions, and facts. So the deliverables to me are always a subset of the policy and a subset of the strategic messaging. Mm -hmm. That doesn't just mean managing the press, uh, although I benefited immensely from, you know, your ability and the skill of the team to engage with the press because things can go very, very, very badly wrong. In fact, they always do in the press. We never had one trip where the press coverage was about what we thought it was going to be about going in, but you're kind to say that. (laughs) Um, But it's, 
the strategic messaging, I think, has to begin with the realization that uh, the president, what he says, where he goes, uh, what activities he undertakes, is addressing multiple audiences simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, he is communicating with the host nation. Of course, he's communicating back to the United States of America. Um, but he's also communicating with the entire world and, right. and the region. So in terms of the trip that's underway right now, I think President Trump's getting ready to leave Beijing and head over to Da Nang, Vietnam, starting with our allies, with Japan and with Korea, mm -hmm. is smart. Right. And I'm not going to say he's just taken a page out of the Obama playbook, but uh, this is certainly what we did and what we would have done, mm -hmm. and that's a good place to start. So, like reassurance, we're there. We're there for you if North Korea acts up. We're there for you if China tries to run you out of X part of the ocean, kind of thing. Well, the goal is reassurance. Just uh, using Japan and Korea as a starting point in and of itself doesn't do the trick, but it sure beats the alternative. Mm -hmm. um, so you begin by affirming uh, your partnership with democratic uh, societies and and treaty allies with whom you share a common destiny mm -hmm. uh, before you uh, go off and, say, visit uh, China and talk to the Chinese. Right. That's important. In the case of uh, Japan, I don't think there's much you can point to as having been accomplished in terms of outcomes and deliverables. But, okay, this is a very mature relationship. Right. Donald Trump had early on signaled that he was determined to get a bilateral trade deal. You didn't hear anything about that mm -hmm. on the visit. So, you know, there are plenty of quibbles in terms of how successful that was. But the fact that he went is a good thing. South Korea, uh, even more important because he had, I think, the translation, rough translation of the Korean is scared the shit out of the wrong Korea, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, you know, the North Koreans are masters of hyperbole. Right. They've got a whole ministry of propaganda and, you know, the biggest thesaurus the world has ever seen. <laughs> yeah. You used to, uh, just a quick aside, Danny used to forward me and Ben Rhodes, like the best of, the greatest hits of North Korean propaganda. And yeah. it was always some fun reading. Well, a little, uh, less, a little less fun now, maybe a little more serious, but then it was great. Well, it has certainly expands my vocabulary. Yeah, me too. It introduced the word dotard into <laughs> yeah. American discourse. We all learned something. Exactly. So, uh, the, I mean, the Korea part is good, but mm -hmm. the big sort of enchilada, of course, is uh, China. Yeah. So it is true that, according to Wilbur Ross, there was somewhere between 9 and $250 billion worth of business conducted. Uh, that's... Hmm. I guess, a rounding error. <laughs> it's quite a range. Yeah. Of course, the Chinese are masters of these sort of IOUs, and they there's a lot of recycling going on and so on. It's too early, really, to make an assessment of sort of how the China trip went, let alone mm -hmm. how the overall trip went, because the region, I think, is waiting uh, for evidence to see whether Donald Trump was taken by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. I mean, since the Han Dynasty, uh, the Chinese have been practicing the art of wowing the visiting barbarian and through a combination of, you know, invoking culture and glorious uh, military 
parades, flattery, and all their other means of sort of co-opting and mm-hmm. disarming uh, foreign visitor. And this stuff is remarkably effective. It yeah. often works. In the specific case of the last two days, you know, you heard some things from Donald Trump about China. Uh, the fact that he, you know, he gave great credit to China for having basically screwed the United States on trade. Yeah, yeah. can we dig in on that for a second? Okay, in May of 2016, Trump said, we can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. He was talking about trade, not intellectual property or anything else. This time he said, who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit. In actuality, I do blame past administration for allowing this trade deficit to take place and grow. What is that? Well, I'd make two points, Tommy. One is that it's still very early days. And whatever uh, President Trump says in Beijing, uh, what is going to matter is ultimately what he does. And mm-hmm. there are you know, multiplicity of views within the administration, as we've all heard and seen. I think the Chinese organized uh, the visit very deliberately. They took his measure and made an assessment about what kinds of uh, things and how much flattery and mm-hmm. uh, so on was going to make a difference to them. They clearly want to uh, deflect yeah. the instinct on the part of Donald Trump to tackle them head on over unfair trade practices, just as they want to deflect uh any inclination to impose penalties on Chinese banks and companies for doing business with North Korea or for mm-hmm. not imposing sufficient costs in the American view. But Xi Jinping is a pretty strong uh, leader in a very strong position. And you can be sure that uh, he's got a plan B if, in fact, uh, that doesn't work. And so the fact that the President of the United States uh, lavished praise on an authoritarian leader like uh, Xi Jinping, notwithstanding the fact that American companies are being raped, uh, are being forced to divulge their source codes and make compromises in order to gain access to the U.S. market. market. We did not allow press questions after a bilateral meeting with President Obama in 2009. We did take questions in 2014. So we toughened up Mm-hmm. from 2010 until after I left, we got a little bit tougher. What did you make of the Trump administration not allowing any press questions? Is this, I mean, I guess there's two takes on it. One is, I guess, maybe they just don't care and they don't want press questions anyway, and I get that. Or this is just what the Chinese want. Well, I think it's part of a, of a couple of patterns. One is that the president's taken a very sort of transactional approach to relationships and you know, seeking to push the principle uh, mm-hmm. that if you're going to do business with the president of the United States, then you're going to have to be open about it and that the right. fourth estate and the media has a right to ask questions. You know, Xi Jinping is eminently capable of handling, right. you know, Mark Landler or another uh, foreign reporter. He, he can do it. Uh, and so to me, it suggests that they didn't really push. And that's the second uh, problem that I see, which is uh, one of opportunity costs, yeah. not utilizing the tremendous leverage. Now, my point, though, Tommy, is that it's not so surprising and it's not a felony for 
uh, president of the United States to make nice, nice to Xi Jinping right. in Beijing. I we mean, did it too. We said the, we said we we're going to call China a currency manipulator. We didn't do it, right? So presidents kind of back off some things. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, they're two different okay. things. One one is the reality of governing versus the sure. rhetoric of about how you're going to be tough. Um, what I'm talking about is the inclination and response to the you know very well developed and sophisticated. Uh, way that Chinese have of handling foreign visitors to make nice nice because hey you too Tommy can be a friend of China right. this right. multi thousand year old culture will change so everything on. you and me so I couldn't help but notice that <laughs> when uh, Xi Jinping escorted President Trump through the uh, Forbidden City in the museum area by sheer chance uh, they happened to have out on a table not behind a glass case. A humongous, solid gold vase, hmm. uh, which they showed him and which he picked up. Uh, he put it back, so don't worry about that. But the <laughs> uh, point is, um, you know, th- there's a Stockholm syndrome, right? Yeah. Well, there's also a Beijing syndrome. Uh-huh. And they definitely turned the love light on Donald J. Trump yeah. uh, in a big way. So my point is... it. You know, these little transgressions or not so little transgressions like not pushing for uh, Q&A or or human rights are one thing. But to me, the bigger issue is how the region interprets the visit. And that's not going to be knowable instantly. But if countries in Asia uh, look at the Xi-Trump interaction and conclude that He's really been had, that that Trump has been played by Xi Jinping, that he's bought uh, into the the narrative. Um, You know, it looks ludicrous to them. It looks naive to them to be talking about the warm personal relationship. This is a hard-boiled, cold-blooded, Leninist, authoritarian leader. I mean, he's a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But he's not sentimental when it comes to China's interests. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's having his headshot made to look more like Chairman Mao's and distributed throughout the country. (laughs) Xi Jinping is a smart, savvy, savvy leader. Right. So whether it's on trade or whether it's on DPRK, North Korea or something else, we're not going to get progress in the U.S.-China relationship or on these problem areas because... Uh, Jinping decided to do the Donald a solid. Right. That's (laughs) that's not how it works. Moreover, for Xi Jinping, showing the Chinese people that the superpower, the leader of the free world, uh, came, uh, was bedazzled by China and is treating Xi Jinping as a peer or frankly, treating him with deference Mm -hmm. is a major domestic political win. And showing the countries in the region that, hey, if you thought that this guy and the Americans were going to come riding to your rescue, if you got crosswise with China and tried to invoke some alliance document or invoke some international legal principle, just look because he's clearly choosing China. He's clearly choosing the strong man of Asia. He's clearly choosing uh, the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's a risk that if our friends come to doubt our staying power uh, and see the emergence of 
uh, kind of you know G2 superpower deal that they will conclude, particularly against the backdrop of diminished American engagement overall in uh, the institutions mm -hmm. of Asia, that, okay, it's, uh, it's China's moment and yeah. we better get on the train. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. I got asked this question a bunch from people. They wanted to know, I don't know that Trump has tweeted from his trip, but yes. people asked me, like, could he even bring his phone out with him? And my memory from my time in government was hearing stories from people doing... Uh, advance on the trip who would wake up 
and see their phone just sort of magically scrolling through by <laughs> itself uh, yeah. at their next to them on their bedside table. My sense was the only way Trump's information security would be safe is if he took the battery out and never let the phone leave the plane. But I'm curious what your take is on whether or not he could bring his phone or tweet while he was in uh, in China. Well, since my life is an open book, uh, Tommy, I have nothing to worry about. I'm sure the Chinese have long <laughs> since crawled all over every piece of yes. electronics I own. But unlike me, uh, Donald Trump has WACA, the White House Communications mm-hmm. Agency, uh, looking after him. Without a doubt, he was instructed not to bring his devices uh, to China. And uh, most people, including most business people, keep a burner or phone or a yeah. spare or iPad or something, uh, go in clean, uh, come out dirty. Yeah. Uh, the president, though, had occasion to tweet several times while he was in oh, China. Good. And it's almost morning uh now, so oh, there could there could be more. Here comes a temper tantrum. Well, trust me, nobody's more nervous about it than the Chinese. I'm sure. But uh, the fact is that if you are a, a foreigner using a 4G phone that's registered overseas, uh, you're going to be able to access more things, I think, including Twitter. Uh, but if you're a Chinese individual, uh, if you're resident in China let alone Chinese citizen. Yeah, no, no internet generally. Um, I want to ask you a couple more questions about China in a minute, but I, I want to ask about a couple more things on the trip. President Trump is spending two days in the Philippines. Um, that's because there are major summits there. But he's also holding a bilateral meeting with Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines. Uh, mm-hmm. Duterte has been accused of mass murder before the International Criminal Court because his version of the war on drugs is not Nancy Reagan in a commercial. It is indiscriminately slaughtering thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> Rather than criticize these extrajudicial killings, Trump told them he was doing, quote, an unbelievable job on the drug problem. Danny, this is a hard problem, right? You have these big, important summits in a country led by a homicidal maniac. What would you have done if President Obama had to go to the Philippines and there was a request from Duterte to meet? Like, How do you deal with a goon like this in a world where there's a lot of goons running around that have a lot of power? Well, President Obama attended summits in countries with somewhat unpalatable leaders uh, more than once. And it is a pretty high bar for the president of the United States uh, opting to boycott a multilateral media. I'm kind of getting a feel for uh, your views on uh, Roddy (laughs) Duterte. (laughs) Uh, And look, I'm the guy who had to go over to uh, his villa and meet with his cabinet officials in Laos uh, when an hour or so before we were departing to go to this uh, ASEAN summit where he was attending for the very first time, uh, he cursed out. President Obama yeah. called him a son of a whore on <laughs> yeah. TV. And so, so, um, Wait, what, what was that meeting like? So I didn't meet with Duterte in that meeting. I had already met with him sure. in Manila with, uh, with Kerry. We had gone after the inauguration. <laughs> uh, and he was, Duterte was more or less on his, uh, on his best behavior, on, on his, his good behavior, yeah. on his meds at that time. Well, meeting with his cabinet, they tried to explain that I was, first of all, totally misreading uh, the president because son of a whore was a term of endearment. Oh, my God. Uh, number two, that they didn't quite say 
take him seriously, but don't take him literally. Oh my God. But it was, you know, along those lines. You know, he deserves the presidential discount. Uh, he says this stuff, but uh, you don't have to pay attention. It's for in- internal consumption, that sort of thing. But eventually they agreed uh, that uh, he would apologize. Mm-hmm. And they were desperate to set up a, a bilateral meeting during the summit with President Obama, which I suspect, strongly suspected would never happen. Yeah. And in the event, Duterte couldn't find it in himself to apologize. Moreover, in the presence of 17 other world leaders, uh, when it came to his turn to talk, he totally lost it and delivered this stunning denunciation of beginning with Magellan's discovery of uh, the Philippines in the 16th century, uh, which apparently Obama is uh, complicit in. Yeah, he's responsible. Uh, and, you know, it was off to the races. Oy. But, I mean, to back up, the Philippines now is governed by a problematic uh, president, not the only country in the United States sure. that falls into that category. And the prospect of a meeting between President Trump and President Duterte is a little bit daunting. It's yeah. kind of like those B movies, sort of King Kong meets Godzilla. <laughs> sure. Uh, and you don't really know, like, are they going to fight? Are yeah. they going to be friends? Who am I rooting for? <laughs> uh, no. But what shouldn't be lost in the discussion or overlooked is not uh, the personal side, but the fact that the United States and the Philippines are tremendously close mm-hmm. uh, friends, partners, allies, uh, have been for uh, so many decades and I'm sure will be going forward. Yeah. And we do a lot of business with them. Speaking of uh, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, North Korea, yes. our buddy Kim Jong-un, arguably the most important topic during the trip so far uh, was North Korea. It was the focus of President Trump's speech to the South Korean National Assembly. Presumably it came up in all of his private meetings in Japan, Korea, China, so just like starting at the at the 101, I mean, you worked on this for decades. We spent a lot of time talking about this during the Obama administration. How worried are you about the state of their program today? I'm extremely worried. And anyone in their right mind should be worried about the progress that uh, North Korea is making both on the nuclear side and on the ballistic missile side. Uh, there's a hell of a lot to worry about in North Korea and from North Korea. Now, I mean, the the good news, if you can put it that way, is that uh, nobody, uh, including the North Koreans, actually want war. Right. Uh, so war's not going to happen on purpose. Um, but, you know, that's, that's cold comfort. The threat <laughs> is very real. Now, you know, when you unpack it, I'm very much of the view that North Korea is not in the war fighting business. It's in the shakedown business. Right. The Kim family and the Gambino family have a basic <laughs> business plan. Yeah. Uh, and that is to scare the hell out of us, to induce us at a moment of panic and high anxiety, to make a deal with them on their terms, to collect what they can collect. Uh, and then when our pockets are empty, rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're up against a tough customer with a clear game plan and the ability to wreak absolute havoc yeah. 
on uh, places, people, and things that we care deeply about. I mean, in some ways, it's almost a classic kind of law enforcement uh, mm-hmm. challenge. And the fact that uh, through a combination of deterrence and defense, uh, the, the United States, with our allies, have kept the peace for decades isn't an accident. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to ensure continues in the future. What's changing is the quality and the punching power yeah. of the North Korean weaponry. Now, that said, and I'm not sanguine about it, I'm very concerned about it, and uh, every any president of the United States will be very concerned and find this an intolerable situation. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there are only two things you can do with a nuclear weapon. Right. You can either detonate it or you can use it to intimidate and to extort. And it's certainly the case that North Korea is not looking to fight a war, uh, as I said. That doesn't mean that things are going to end well, Mm -hmm. but it certainly does mean that we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of of trying to pay ransom, uh, pay off uh, the extortionists. So our plan, our strategy, our priority is stopping the North Korean nuclear and missile program, uh, finding ways to roll it back, if at all possible, uh, and to do so without precipitating thermonuclear war, (laughs) if we can avoid that. (laughs) The theory of the case is that since North Korea can't be cajoled or persuaded or, or teased into compromise that we have to work collectively uh, with other international partners to systematically remove Kim Jong-un's options and to sort of strip away what he needs in order to maintain regime security in an inexorable, relentless way uh, so that he concludes that he is simply not going to prevail as he had hoped in this particular gambit. He's not going to relinquish his nuclear weapons easily or quickly or if ever, but bring him to the point where he concludes that he can't keep going forward. He has to take some steps back. And however grudgingly, maybe with both hands crossed behind his back, uh, come to the negotiating table prepared to engage on an agenda that includes denuclearization. Mm -hmm. Now, to complicate matters further, even though uh, the Chinese oppose North Korea's nuclear program, and President Trump said repeatedly during his visit that we and the Chinese agree, we agree, in every meeting with Xi Jinping that I ever attended accompanying the president, the vice president, secretary, etc., Xi Jinping always made the following statement. He said, uh, China's position is no war, no chaos, no nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. That means no nukes nukes comes in third. Yeah, right. So a big part of the Chinese strategy is stopping the United States from squeezing Kim Jong-un so hard that it either starts a war 
or that it precipitates a collapse, which has negative strategic yeah. uh, consequences for well, the Chinese side. Can I ask you about the off-ramp? Because we've seen Trump seemingly lurch from sort of relatively conciliatory statements early on, saying he would meet with Kim Jong-un, he had empathy for him, to ranting about fire and fury and undercutting Rex Tillerson, who was trying to have conversations about North Korea and saying it was a waste of time. Back to what, you know, in South Korea, he outlined in his speech seemed like a fairly standard approach to South Korea. I mean, do you think they've provided the space to get that off ramp that would allow Kim Jong-un to sort of back off? Or are we still at loggerheads in a scary way? Well, I'm not an advocate of the kind of insult brand of uh, diplomacy or diplotainment maybe mm-hmm. is what sure. it really is. And I don't think it advances the cause. Um, but I also don't think that it is going to trigger war with North Korea. That's good in, in part because President Trump has a record of being able uh, pretty agilely to sidestep uh, otherwise a apparently categorical statements and commitments that he's made. And Mm -hmm. I don't expect this would be any different. Certainly, it looks like uh, the North Koreans who are themselves in the hyperbole business feel that uh, he's bluffing and that they've called his bluff. That's not a good place to be either. There's a real risk, though. Well, let me put it this way. The problem is not that you can't get the North Koreans to the table. Right now, they're playing hard to get. But I believe that their strategy is to, in fact, get us to the table. The problem is that they want us to come and accede to their terms. Mm -hmm. They want to dictate uh, the outcome of the next round of negotiations. And they want to approach them in a way that marginalizes and belittles Uh, South Korea that creates real divisions uh, among the allies, et cetera, and that uh, sets the nuclear issue off to some infinitely receding horizon in the future and instead deals with uh, their agenda. And their agenda is America should pay up. America, because of its quote-unquote hostile policy, needs to uh, end joint military exercises, it needs to withdraw its U.S. forces, et cetera, et cetera. If we accept negotiations on those terms, we are making a disastrous mistake, uh, one that will not only go nowhere in terms of progress on the threat from their nuclear and missile programs, uh, but will also be tremendously damaging to our alliances Mm -hmm. and I think, undercut the NPT and American credibility around the whole world. Right. Now, I, I'm not saying that we have to lay on elaborate preconditions. And many people are a little bit confused by some of the statements, including in the president's speech to the South Korean National Assembly, that implied that the objective of negotiations, denuclearization, is somehow a predicate or a prerequisite for negotiations. But Maybe that's inexperience, and maybe those are just nomenclature issues. The fact is that the strategy that the Trump administration is pursuing, when you set aside the hyperbole and the chest beating, is 
fundamentally the logical extension of the strategy that the Obama administration pursued, which is to impose significant costs to North Korea for its behavior, to maximize pressure and to contain North Korea, to make it harder and harder for it not only to proliferate or to obtain the hard currency that it needs uh, for its programs, mm -hmm. but really just to keep going for regime yeah. uh, stability and to work to sustain unity uh, in the first instance among the allies with Japan and Korea, but more broadly uh, to include China. This is all a good approach. Now, by good, I mean the least worst of a whole raft of terrible yeah. options, yeah. but it is to paraphrase Sherlock Holmes, what you have left when you remove everything else that is utterly unacceptable, yeah. like war. So often you hear, the conventional wisdom you hear on North Korea is that China could fix this. You see it in Trump tweets, you see it in punditry on TV. What do you think the reality is there? And, and, and what do you make of sort of a, a related idea, which is that there's a suggestion that unlocking China's efforts and getting them to do more would involve having a conversation with them on the front end about what the U.S. presence on the Korean Peninsula would look like in the event of either Kim Jong-un falling or reunification of South and North Korea. Well, I'm very much of the view that it well, there's no peaceful solution to the threat from the DPRK that doesn't involve serious U.S.-China uh, authentic collaboration, strategic cooperation. But there is no amount of nagging and no amount of uh, threatening that will get them there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it is absolutely essential uh, to work to find a way on the front end to chart out a mutually acceptable picture of the future of the peninsula and Northeast Asia. However, that's not as easy as it may sound for a couple of reasons. The starting point has to be what I would call a mapping exercise. We really need to seriously examine uh, what our respective interests are, what our uh, thresholds are for an acceptable outcome, mm -hmm. and to try to see where they overlap and where they diverge. Because although there are important areas of convergence between the U.S. and China, such as we strongly oppose a nuclear North Korea, there are also important areas of divergence. Uh, so that exercise has never been conducted, uh, and much of the reason was certainly in the Obama administration. Uh, the Chinese just didn't have an appetite for being that open, and there was a taboo, a kind of totemic fear that if they talked about a future without North Korea, they were somehow secretly wink, wink, green lighting a U.S. military operation or covert action, something like that. So there is, you know, a not inconsiderable trust, trust deficit. Uh, 
it will not be easy to find the right people uh, from Beijing and the right people from Washington, but I think that's an eminently worthwhile project. You can't expect the Chinese simply to take our word for it. Right. This is a Leninist system that believes strongly that the West is out to get them. And there isn't a kind of uh, verbal reassurance that the U.S. can give, okay, we're not going to move our troops north of the 38th parallel no matter what kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But So it, it will be a long road to hoe, yeah. but it's definitely a worthwhile exercise. The other complication, Otami, is that we can't leave our allies in the lurch. Yeah. And the big powers conspiring to determine the fate of the Korean people behind their back and over their head is the national nightmare of yeah. South Korea. Hasn't worked so well in, uh, in a whole bunch of other places like the Middle East either. But luckily, we have the man for the job, Jared Kushner. Back to this, this Leninist system you talked about. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you a couple questions about China. So they just completed the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. This meeting took place in the Great Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square, I read that 2,287 attendees get together, must be a blast. They elect new leadership for the next five years, including the Politburo Standing Committee, which effectively rules the country. Mm-hmm. I will admit, I made it through four years of the White House without ever having a good understanding of what the hell the party Congress is or how the leadership system works. Can you give us like a, a little 101 of like what happens at this meeting and who is chosen and how they rule? Well, other than the fact that there's uh, unanimous and vehement agreement on (laughs) the entire party platform, I think the first thing to know is that the government of China doesn't run China. The Communist Party of China runs China. Uh, The party is supreme, literally and figuratively, and the government is uh, purely subservient to that. The titles uh, by which... Xi Jinping governs. Xi Jinping has three titles. By far and away, his most important title is General Secretary of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second most important title is Chairman of the Military Commission of the Communist Party. Because guess what? China doesn't have a national army. The Communist Party has an armed wing, the People's Liberation Army and Navy. And thirdly, <laughs> oh, by the way... Imagine the Republican Party had an army. <laughs> that, that would up the stakes a little bit here. Sorry to interrupt. Tommy, be careful. <laughs> yeah, careful what you suggest to our friends. No. Only thirdly is Xi Jinping the president mm-hmm. of the People's Republic of China. And that's, you know, that's not the title with which he governs day to day. So the party is incredibly important in China. And in fact, he has made it his mission to do everything he could to strengthen uh, the party and strengthen himself as the core of the party. Once every five years, the party senior members uh, meet in the Great Hall of the People in the Party Congress, uh, at which time they adopt a platform that charts the the future goals mm-hmm. uh, and the themes, the doctrine that will guide the party going ahead. Some of it is fairly specific. Um, some of it is very Talmudic mm-hmm. and theoretical. 
Um, very importantly, at that time, they also announce uh, personnel decisions. Got it. So China was ruled by, of course, Mao Zedong for decades and then suffered under a cultural revolution that was traumatic uh, for the nation and the successive generations of leaders. In the aftermath of the cultural revolution uh, under Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping uh, China's leaders uh, deliberately developed a sort of consensus-based system of collective leadership in order to guard against the extreme uh, extremes of one-man rule. Uh, and that has continued over time. And so the, the combination of personnel in senior party slots has always been an in- intricate jigsaw mm-hmm. puzzle and hugely important. So basically, you have the Central Committee, which is about 200-plus uh, senior party members. You have the standing – excuse me, the, you have the Central Committee, 200 some odd uh, members. Uh, you have the Politburo, which is about uh, 20 plus members. And then you have the Standing Committee mm-hmm. of the uh, Politburo, uh, which is now seven members. Uh, and these are the sort of three leadership tiers. Xi Jinping was successful in ensuring that. Uh, no rival faction within the Communist Party uh, was able to place a powerful uh, member, someone with a future, in the uh, standing committee. Uh, And he seems to have been able to populate much of the Politburo and the Central Committee with what you would call loyalists, or at least people who will age out and who are not in a position to oppose him. To challenge him. Right. You know, the two things that experts looked at most closely in the run-up to the 19th Party Congress were personnel and doctrine. Hmm. And even though it sounds like these sort of medieval Christian debates over, you know, nomenclature and so on, what we saw in the event was the introduction into the formula uh, Xi Jinping's thought. Hmm. And just take my word that introducing uh, Xi Jinping thought, uh, which is the same language that was used for Mao Zedong thought, and a lot of experts would argue a bump above Deng Xiaoping's theory, and certainly a lot better than what Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao had, uh, that this represents more than almost anything you can point to the uh, success of uh, Xi Jinping's effort to really take control of the Communist Party. Because what it means is that if Xi Jinping's thought is enshrined in the party constitution, Mm -hmm. he speaks for the party. Interesting. And he can't be gainsaid. That's not a five-year scenario. Right. That's a, you know, until the next strong guy comes yeah, along that's a scenario. Long right. He's a tough cookie, right? I mean, he grew up dirt poor, worked his way up. He has taken on sort of a man of the people vibe. Um, he famously went and got some steam buns and bust his own tray and seemed like a normal guy. There, there's this like 
George Bush, you'd like to have a beer with him vibe. But does that mask a pretty brutal, successful politician? Or what's he like in your experience? Well, I first uh, met him uh, when I accompanied Vice President Biden to China and spent, depending on who you ask, either three days or I think the vice president's memory may be up to about six months now. <laughs> no, I'm I'm teasing. Uh, we spent an extended amount of yeah. time with then uh, Vice President Xi, who then came to the United States, right. and we traveled with him, including to Los Angeles. Yeah, didn't he go to Iowa too? Or something? He went to Iowa. Uh, Biden and the team uh, let him handle that. Smart. Uh, we didn't go there, but we we came here. Uh, and then, of course, I was present in the subsequent meetings, in, both in Beijing and elsewhere, including in Washington, uh, when he was president and met with President Obama and others. I was struck uh, from the very beginning by the sense that whereas the Chinese leaders that I'd been able to observe all came across pretty much as automatons, there's a mm-hmm. very kind of neutral, deadpan, robotic quality to them, that uh, Xi Jinping behaved in a way that felt natural to me uh, as a politician. Hmm. And I don't mean, you know, stem-winning speeches and uh, that kind of stuff, but he was always asking questions. He had a pretty considerable intellectual curiosity. He wanted to come out of any meeting kind of the winner, not because he'd out-argued the other guy, but because he'd sort of found out what the other guy knew that hmm. might be useful and applicable to him. Smart. So I think having a a sort of Paul, uh, somebody with a feel for uh, what the public wants, with an interest or at least a recognition of the importance of, of messaging and of strategic storytelling in a way, constitutes a change. That doesn't make him a nice guy. Right. Uh, but if you look at the record of what he was able to do in his first five years, you know, it's pretty amazing. As I said, China's leadership had evolved into uh, collective leadership, uh, consensus-based, in which the elders, the former presidents, the former leaders wielded immense power from the sidelines. And in Chinese culture, for a lot of reasons, uh, there's a very clannish element. And so who your patron is and who you line up with, whether you came from the Communist Youth Party or you came from Shanghai, all that matters hugely. Are you a Prince Ling? Are you a mm-hmm. technocrat? Well, Xi Jinping essentially caged the elders who, you know, in 2011 and early 2012, the experts anticipated would continue to really run China. They don't anymore. He sidelined, to put it mildly, and in some cases (laughs) exterminated uh, his rivals through, largely through the anti-corruption campaign. He gained unprecedented authority over the military, over the PLA, and began a, a very significant process of modernization and professionalism. He, in many respects, sort of marginalized the government bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which has been a, 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 an obstacle to reform in the past by creating these party uh, leading groups, uh, coincidentally, all of which he chairs. <laughs> Lucky uh, guy. Yeah, and that are staffed by uh, party people who are loyal to him. And 
that has really transformed in many respects uh, the way that uh, the Chinese government operates. Mm. He built up a draconian internal security system and a propaganda system par excellence. He's legalized and institutionalized repression and ironically used the fruit of uh, open societies technology to develop tools to eliminate political space in a, yes. in a big way. Um, he's squeezed foreign companies in China to China's benefit. He's leveraged market access. He's kept his economy growing. Uh, he's pursued a, a reform in a couple of areas. Um, he's certainly bolstered China's regional and global profile. I mean, see Davos' speech in January I mean, to an extraordinary extent. He's used things like the BRICS, uh, the group of mm -hmm. you know Brazil, Russia, India, uh, <clears throat> China, South Africa. He's used and developed the AIIB Bank and now this much talked about Belt and Road Initiative. The, the Asian Investment Bank. Right. So he's doing a, literally everything. And he's gained a pretty substantial degree of control and leverage over his neighbors yeah. as witness – uh, the South China Sea and and the Philippines and mm -hmm. Brunei and others. Uh, he totally beat the rap on the Law of the Sea Tribunal verdict that had gone shockingly against China. Nobody's been able to uh, hold uh, him accountable. So that was all in his first term. Now uh, coming out of the 19th Party Congress, uh, he is uh, significantly strengthened politically, and he's mapped out the China dream. Yeah. He's mapped out what he calls the new era. And what the current trip to Asia by Donald Trump will tell the region is whether the future is going to be the China dream, whether the new era is going to look a lot like uh, China – in the you know Qin Dynasty, where the imperial center extracted tribute from uh, the peripheral vassal states, in other words, in modern terms, uh, a sphere of influence. Ah, good. Another one of those. My last question for you is about cybersecurity and, and sort of cyber warfare. Um, we kind of joked earlier about you know not taking your phone into China or, or off the plane if you're President Trump, but. You know, we've been hearing so much about Russian hacking lately, and I think the Chinese are arguably better at it. They've stolen millions of, of U.S. government personnel records, including ours. They've stolen uh, sensitive information about our most advanced fighter jets, for example, the F-22 and the F-35. They've hacked Google. Um, they've stolen billions of dollars worth of intellectual property from countless companies. Do you think there's a chance that the Chinese could see Putin's interference in our election and how successful it was and think, let's try that now. We should shift our focus from more traditional subterranean spy work to overt attacks like the Russians did. That's a great question. And when people say that's a great question, it always means they don't know the answer. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying guess, right? Well, I think that China and Russia are quite different. Now, there are points of convergence and there's overlap. My, first of all, uh, there is no common turn in China. I mean, China is not a proselytizing uh, nation in that 
they are not trying to spread their s- political system. They are trying to delegitimize the American-led mm-hmm. uh, Western liberal order, but I think that's for their own reasons. They want to insulate themselves against pressure to adhere to um, inconvenient universal norms and laws and values and so on. Uh, not that they're out to genuinely substitute uh, their way because it's an exceptionalist culture. It's China's Communist Party. Uh, so they're not like the old Soviet Union. I also think that unlike Vladimir Putin, the Chinese don't object to there being a thriving United States. Uh, they're not seeking to undermine our system, in my opinion. Uh, they want, however, to ensure that they are able to have their way with the region, certainly, and with select parts of the world without American interference. Mm -hmm. So I tend to question whether the uh, Chinese would be tempted to interfere as aggressively or directly in the U.S. political process as the Russians might or may well have. What the Chinese seem to be focusing on in terms of uh, cyber is strategic and economic advantage. Mm -hmm. So first of all, they're playing a defensive game. They want to maintain absolute control over what happens in China, including in cyberspace around China. And that means that we have diametrically opposed views of the internet. Is it the worldwide web? Or is it a web that looks like that world map you had when you were in high school with color, different colors for different countries and, mm-hmm. and hard borders? Uh, the Chinese, in the first instance, want to ensure that uh, no other party or country can introduce information into China without their say-so. Uh, They want to have absolute control at home. Secondly, I think that um, although the Chinese, first in copyright and patent matters, and then as China grew and discovered that it had something to lose, Mm -hmm. not just something to gain, then moved into the cyber world, China has acted in a way uh, that suggests that uh, all's fair in love, war, and business. Mm-hmm. The United States government under Barack Obama categorically objected to that. We remonstrated with them. Uh, the president was very forceful in every meeting he had with Chinese leaders, including a long, difficult discussion at Sunnylands, that I recall, to no avail until in the immediate run-up to uh, Xi Jinping's state visit to the United States, word got out that the United States was preparing to take very significant legal action against uh, state-sponsored cyber-enabled theft of American corporate proprietary information. And that would have proven a huge embarrassment to Xi Jinping. He dispatched his uh, security czar, Meng Jinju, to Washington with basically don't come home without a deal instructions. 
And in the course of 48 plus hours, uh, we were able to hash out some basic rules of the road that have by and large stuck that included an acceptance by China in principle that that was unacceptable behavior. So there are a lot of dimensions to uh, our differences in cyberspace. Uh, I wouldn't be tempted to apply the Russian template to Good. China, however. Good. I'll never forget when I first got the the uh, NSC spokesman job, I got a request from the Chinese embassy to meet with their my counterpart, I guess, in the embassy. And he showed up with like eight dudes and they <laughs> tried to hand me and Caitlin Hayden a whole bunch of thumb drives and CD ROMs and all these <laughs> all these helpful items that we took on board and gave to the uh, the Intel goons back at the White House and never looked at again. Danny Russell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for helping me understand the Chinese government a little bit better and uh, what the hell is happening on this trip. And I think my blood pressure went down a click on North Korea. So thanks for that, too. Great. Well, it's great talking to you. Great <laughs> seeing you, Tommy. Thanks, buddy. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware.